0: And this is episode 140. Our guest today has literally been a part of the equestrian industry for his entire life. His mom and his sister have ridden, his wife rides, and they have a beautiful farm in California where he has his business. They have breeding, training, and he is constantly riding and gearing up for an FEI event. He has over 30 FEI wins in the past decade and some huge aspirations for the future. He is a true sense of a lifelong learner for the sport. He is constantly growing, and I love his walking and talking videos on his Instagram, where he talks about lots of different topics that people don't really talk about or that people really want to learn more about, which is the whole goal of the Equestrian Podcast. I was so excited to have him on. Without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Carl Cook. Well, I would love to hear about how you first kind of found yourself in the equestrian world.
1: Yeah, so growing up, my mom had two horses in, in the backyard. She would take them on trails, and then on every now and then she would take them to a barn and get some lessons. She owned a horse, you know, she owned a, a Grand Prix horse, and just growing up, that's the way that it was. And then when I got old enough, you know, as anyone who any parent who likes horses. I got a pony and just kept going.
0: Yeah, love it. Were you um, the kind of kid that like, were you like begging your mom to be a part of it? Or was she like, you're gonna like ponies? And how did that kind of go in the beginning?
1: It's kind of neither. You know, the pony that I, you know, we had a retired pony in the backyard. And then, you know, one day she showed me a picture of a little white pony doing pony jumpers and said, would you like a pony? <laughs> I said, sure. And, and she got that pony, you know, saying yes or no, really made no difference to me at that point. You know, I think yeah. I was like eight, nine years old or something. Yeah. We actually still have that pony. Um, my sister won pony jumper finals on that pony. And I guess in the beginning, I, I, w- I didn't have to be forced to do it. I mean, some days, sure, you know, if any young boy – terrible people, young boys. But I also, you know, I wasn't like begging to do it. I just kind of did it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: At what point were you like, okay, I'm like really into this. I feel like I want to have this be a big part of my life.
1: I guess maybe it it started when I won Young Riders. Because it was still, seeds were planted when I did Young Riders, when I won Young Riders. And then I think it got stronger after I... Uh, graduated high school. I then went to college and I didn't want to go to college Mm -hmm. anymore. So, you know, it was either go to college and not really ride or ride and not go to college. That decision was, for me, was easy, you know, took some convincing on the parent side, but to, you know, to pull it off, I had to show that I was, you know, I really wanted to do it. I was really dedicated. I was really pushing myself. I wasn't just doing it just to do it. Like I was like, really you know going all in and then and then in 2012 when i moved to start trading with eric in france that was big because i finally saw that things were possible yeah meaning like there was actually like reasons behind why things happen if you do something you can actually see a difference you know precision is important you know horsemanship is important which is obviously obvious but he is so good that you could actually see it happen instead of just off. Like, it wasn't, you know, theoretical or philosophical. It was mm-hmm. like you could actually see it working. Yeah. Um,
0: How long did you work with him?
1: I started training with him in the summer of 2012. So, almost nine years.
0: Wow. Awesome. I mean, what, what are some things, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's so many things that you have taken from that time that you use in your, your day-to-day life with your riding and training now. Are there some things that stick out in your head that you feel like you really utilize?
1: I think the, one of the, the biggest ones is also one of the hardest ones to do, and that's his level of precision.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm not just talking about precision while riding. I mean, every single aspect is insanely precise. You know, we when I went to get new bridles, none of the bridles were made correctly. So we designed a bridle, and our bridle holes are closer together than anyone else's huh. because we wanted to have more very vari- more ability to change them. Yeah, or we will literally color certain chains. Because they are like two millimeters longer or shorter right. than another. Or, you know, his flat leather rein is something like 20 thousandths of an inch thinner than mine that I use. Yeah. And you can feel the difference. Cool. And, you know, so precision is levels of precision in everything that you do, you know, from your feeding program to, you know how you set the bridle each day and making sure that it's set correctly each day, you know, how the different levels of the tack are fit, how the care of the the horses is so precise and consistent. I think that's the biggest thing, but like I said, I think it's also the hardest thing. That level of discipline to maintain that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is really difficult.
0: Right. And there's definitely an aspect to it too. It's like there are, Like you had this wonderful opportunity to learn that firsthand. And some people, I mean, I feel like you sometimes have to get a little creative and, you know, put yourself out there to find ways to learn that from other people or to to develop that. I know you and I were talking, I loved your recent walking and talking about developing your eye. And I feel like that's very similar to this conversation about how you can learn more about the sport and how to effectively learn. Do you want to kind of touch on that and what your thoughts are about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think where I would start with that is I think, what a lot of people miss and it would be great if it worked this way is people our brains naturally go to th- you know learning is a passive act meaning you you go train with a trainer and that trainer just showers you with all this great knowledge that will just absorb into you and become who you are and all you have to do is just bathe in in that trainer's what the trainer is putting out there which for me, it's just objectively false. You learn so much better being active. Even if you have a really great, knowledgeable trainer, it's always better to be active. True. You know, to ask questions and all that stuff. And then taking that and going to, you know, that video about developing your eye, you know, it, that first came, you know, just from like a short conversation I had with a close friend of mine out in Thermal when I was there earlier this year, saying like, it's really easy to develop your eye. And I just offhand just said... The first thing you gotta do is just describe what you see. You don't have to know what you're talking about. You just have to describe. And then that kind of sparked a, you know, a little a short conversation because we, we both had to go to different rings, but he kind of liked that way of approaching it. And so I want to do a video on it because I think it's, you don't need, I guess my point there is you don't need a skilled trainer for you can just passively just get bathed in knowledge. You know, you can, without any knowledge, you can actively learn, teach yourself. You know, there was a comment in on that video of someone saying, yeah, but I don't understand. I didn't know what uh, jumping inverted was, so I had to go look it up. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to comment back, well, you can see if the head is high and the withers are low. Mm-hmm. You might not know that there's a term for that, but you can still see it. I didn't comment. I probably should have. But I think, you know, people want... You know, they hold themselves back and they don't open their minds to like, if I don't know what I'm looking for, I shouldn't mm-hmm. look,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I should be taught how to look before I look. Right. And I think that's just, you know, it's kind of what I wanted to talk about in the video. And I, I wanted people also who don't have access to highly skilled and capable trainers, not to feel like, you know, the... I'm screwed. I'll never, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no way for me to, you know, do it.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And I think, kind of like what you were saying, it's, I think a big part of our industry is that if you don't know what, Maybe what you're looking for, what you're doing, that there's that fear to come across that you don't know it all. There's definitely a standard that, you know, as a professional or if you've been riding for a long time, you should know everything and have all the answers. And I mean, that's just obviously not the case. And so having that mentality that it's okay to ask questions no matter what level you're at or how long you've been in it.
1: Well, you know, the famous Socrates quote, I'm the wisest man because I know I do not know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely true. I mean, and that's, it's also just the joy uh, that our sport, that you can be a part of it for so long is that it, the it's kind of like the more you're into it and the more you learn, the more you realize that, oh, wow, I have so much more to learn.
1: Well, and I think how long it takes for you to actually, if you're able, get to a really high level and stay there, mm-hmm. I think just is an indicator of how much knowledge there has to be to be able to get there and stay there. You know, if when you look at, say, something on the flip side like uh, gymnastics, these kids are 16. How much could they have learned in the years since they first started forming memories? You know, I've been riding for longer than a lot of those people's lives, and yet my knowledge base is still growing. And I think that shows it's more about how you mentally approach things than physically.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. So you're watching, you're feeling, you're asking the questions, you're learning from other people. How do you go from that step to then translating that into developing your writing ability?
1: I think it's it's just repetition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's observation and repetition, and the better at observing the better you will be at repeating, you know, you, it, you could also think of it as, you know, if you're, if you make a recipe, you find a recipe or online or whatever, and you follow that recipe really well, you then recipe say, Oh, you know, there's a bit too much carrot. Okay. Next time use a little bit less carrot, mm-hmm. but you followed it. You, you saw the recipe, you disciplined yourself you followed it. You did it perfectly. And then you can make your own judgments. And I think it's the same as, as, you know, the more you observe, the more you can apply and then you can feel whether the application was good. You know, you can say, well, maybe if it's not, if it, di- if it doesn't work, you know, it's maybe my application was off. Maybe okay. I need to make this adjustment to my application or maybe I just misunderstand. And that's where then the activity comes where you go and you ask and asking active questions, you know, asking vulnerable questions where you're not just wanting someone to say, I look good. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll ask questions, you know, I'll show videos to other you know, people that I ride with or I ride, compete against, or I'll ask them to watch me. And, and I'll say, What did you think? And I said, If you said it looks good, I'm gonna slap you inside the face. You, yeah, you know, exactly. I don't wanna hear <laughs> yeah. that it looks good. That's not helpful for me. I wanna hear what could have been better. I wanna hear what I did wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I, if I just hear that it looks good, and that's all mentally I'm okay with hearing, you know, I don't fight it. You know, if, if someone says it looks like, did something better, or you did something wrong, and you just fight it, mm-hmm. then they won't respond the same next time round.
0: Right. You know you
1: have to be more, you know, or open. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly, especially in a sport where, I mean, like like a lot of sports that is based off of. You know, you maybe start at a at a point and then get, you know, deducted based on maybe errors or things that you didn't do perfectly. It's definitely a sport that you need to be okay with things not going perfectly because very, very rarely do they go perfectly.
1: Of course. And and you know, and that's a okay thing. You know, that's not a right. bad thing. Definitely. There's no stigma or there shouldn't be a stigma around that.
0: Absolutely. What are some things that you feel like you are particularly working on right now in your riding?
1: I think, I think maybe what I'm working on the most right now is, is the balancing act. You know, you, you, you work with a horse trying to teach them, you know, to, to canter a certain way or to build a bigger canter, to collect that canter, to turn better, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to be a certain way. And then the balance is between that and then when you're right, when you're you know, when you're not getting frustrated when it when it's not, you know, going the way you want or as quickly as you want. Yeah. And then when you're in the ring, not being you know, kind of going with the flow a bit more, you know, just feeling and riding and and allowing the horse to be who they are. Mm-hmm. And not fitting, like, the mold that you want them to be. Yeah, you know, where me, the rider, is the one that's doing the changing, not so much the horse, Mm. but I'm still working with the horse trying to get them better at certain things that they don't do well. Right. You know, I I have a 17.2 hand horse, and in the same class, I might ride, you know, my 15.3 hot mare, Mm -hmm. you know. Those are wildly different horses. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm so insistent that I have my own way of riding and the horse has to fit that way of riding and that's my style, it's only going to hold me back. So I need to be able to to work with that horse to make what they can improve as good as possible. And then I have to ride them to what helps them be as good as possible, not what best suits me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you have a type, like in an ideal world, is there, are there certain things that you would ideally like to have or that you look for?
1: Not really. I, you know, I I have small, careful horses. I have big scopey horses. Yeah. Uh, I have big strided horses and small strided horses. I don't, I don't struggle with that as some other people do. And Mm -hmm. even like really, really good professionals that have one amazing things have only like one horse Mm -hmm. style. You know, if you go outside that style there, you know, and that's totally, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just something that I don't want to do. You know, I want to be able to do the other ones. I think I don't, I don't, I can't think of any like one that, you know, that I particularly gravitate towards.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just thinking about your horses, you do, you don't really have a type. I mean, when you say, kind of looking from the outside in and you see, like you were saying different professionals and it's like, they have you, they clearly have a type. You definitely have a big variety.
1: Yeah. I just, I don't know. I've never, never really developed a type.
0: Switching gears a bit because I have a question for you listening. How much time and money do you spend on your horse's training and maintenance versus the time and money spent on your personal training and maintenance to enhance your ability as a rider? This is where Athlete EQ comes in. Athlete EQ is a complete fitness and health concept specialized for equestrian athletes. Training to strengthen the abilities as a rider needs to be specific and efficient. It needs to be long-term and it needs to be adjusted over time as we develop in the sport together with our horses. The health and fitness of the rider should be considered just as often as the health and fitness of the horse because it's a true team sport and it really helps to have the health and fitness of both horse and rider in check. My girl Nina from Athlete EQ has a deep understanding of the equestrian sport. She is actually also an equine nutritionist and works with some of the world's leading sport veterinarians. She also works with some top riders on their fitness and nutrition, like Jessica Springsteen, Emily Moffat, and Adrian Sternlicht. She also works with some top riders specifically on their equine nutrition, like Michael and John Whitaker's horses and Nelson and Rodrigo Pessoa's horses. I'm telling you, this is an incredible program, and I am so excited for Nina to come on the podcast very soon, so be on the lookout for her episode. But for now, take a look at our website at athleteeq.eu. That's A-T-H-L-E-T-E-Q dot E-U for more information. Thank you so much, Athlete EQ. All right, let's go back to the episode. What would you say is an area of the industry that you're super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about?
1: I guess, you know, I'm, I'm fully supportive of tradition and, and, and where we came from, as is any sport. But also in those sports, they venerate their tradition Yet they push full speed ahead to get better for the future. You know, there's no, you know, you watch American football in, in the 80s and it looks completely different to how it looks today. Oh, yeah. You, you, you know, the game of baseball, Formula One, you know, car racing looks completely different sure. than it did in the 80s. And, and the level of precision that is used now is off the charts compared to what it used to. And what didn't used to matter in the past is now starting to matter and, and not having that, you know, what I, so to answer your question, for me, what I'm passionate about is, is the data side of things. It's the, how can we make small percentage point gains, you know, and and that gain might not be in the horse jumping higher, but it might be in, the longevity of the horse mm-hmm. and that alone is a gain you know you're not jumping higher or clearer but you're jumping for longer mm-hmm. you know that's a gain and a lot of people I look crazy with a lot of the way we do things and a lot of how I care about data and and all that stuff but for me it's 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 the future you know and the reason why is when I look back from from Hickstead back uh, there was always, basically always, one horse rider combination that was just thirty percentage points better than mm-hmm. everyone else. Yeah, you know, you you had John Whitaker and Milton. You had uh, Rodrigo and Balu Bay. You had Meredith and Shutterfly. Eric Lamaze and Hickstead. There, there's some others in there who had maybe a little bit shorter runs, but there were a Scott Brash and Hello Sanctos. Maybe that was the one outlier, but mm. you had these combinations that were just enormously better mm. than anyone else. So if one pairing is 30% better, then if you spend a lot of time and effort to get a half percentage point better, you're not going to notice, mm. you know, Where nowadays we don't have those horse rider pairings that are just 30 percentage points better. We have more competitors than there ever have been. And the differences between the horse rider combinations is smaller and smaller, like in their capability, Mm -hmm. like their ability to win the class. And so that means that those smaller fractional places of improvement that never used to matter now matter Hmm. you know if i can if i can pile on like 10 half percentage point improvements that's a five percentage point increase yeah you know and that is very noticeable now
0: Mm -hmm. where it
1: wouldn't have been in the past
0: right totally what are what are what do you feel like are some of those little things? I mean, you mentioned longevity of the horse. What are some other ways that you feel like you could start kind of chipping away at that percentage to start making a difference?
1: Well, I think I think you know, it all starts with collecting data because it's hard to mm-hmm. hard to analyze data until you can collect it. Right. So the first step is collecting it. I think a big one which I've been, you know, Talked about a lot on my walking and talking is footing, not like good or bad, but what is the footing, mm-hmm. and how does that then affect the horse, and and then what adjustments can I make to help out, either to make the footing better or to make my horse have a more positive impact on the footing. You know, it's hard for people to wrap their brains around it, but the high so the acceleration of gravity is is it's exponential growth you know 9.8 meters per second squared so the higher you jump it requires exponentially higher forces to push you that high and you have exponentially higher impact forces so jumping 0.80 isn't half the effort of one meter sixty it's not linear it's exponentially It's hard to get people to wrap their brains around it. Mm -hmm. How much more sensitive everything is, the higher you jump. And nowadays, we're jumping so much more than we ever did in the past. It's faster, it's, you know, tighter, it's more careful. Mm -hmm. And that, and if we want to build greater longevity, those tiny details in the footing matter. Definitely, you know, two weeks on a little bit hard footing at show A might affect me two weeks down the road at show B. You know, and that effect might be small, but it's important. And, you know, we, you know, our consistency of of how we how we feed the horses help see if there's any change. Or how we you know we weigh our horses and we track their weights mm-hmm. so then we can use that data graphed over time to see if there's any changes over time and then we can diagnose those changes because again you have the data yeah i did some work on measuring the and syncing that with video so that i could watch the video and see how much tension were on each of my reins you know that way you can greater analyze what's going on and there's more and more sensors now there's one I'm going to start playing with that measures like jump arc mm. um, and speed and that sort of thing. So I can, you know, try and see what information is there and how possibly I can use it to affect, you know, my riding, my train, that work, you know.
0: Definitely. What would you, I mean, Let's say, I mean, I think the fact that you're doing that is so awesome to really, to have data to start with, to kind of start seeing any patterns or trends or things that you could change or tweak. If you, if there were many people, you know, many professionals, like collecting this data, how would you think that that could, over time, kind of change, you know, what we first started talking about, about having those those changes affect our sport and kind of just our sport as a whole?
1: How would it change our sport as a whole?
0: Yeah, like you mentioned that kind of the first step is collecting data. So let's say, I mean, you're collecting data, I would love to see, you know, other people like doing more and more toward collecting data, and there's definitely more technology coming out that allows that. What's kind of the next step?
1: Well, you know, me, I'm interested in it and how it can help me yeah. and the horses that I care for. I, if I can't make it work for me, it's hard for me to get someone else convince someone else. Yeah. Unless I've missed something, which obviously I try very hard not to miss anything, right. Right? but it happens. I think I've thought about doing a video on this on my walking and talking but I haven't been able to figure out the right words Hmm. but there's a lot of things that I do with my horses that if I was jumping 120 I would not do
0: Hmm.
1: even though I have the knowledge and the ability to do it because it's unnecessary yeah an example I can give is you know if you're you're my my Toyota 4Runner my car you know I put you know motor oil in it you know nice motor oil, not the cheapest and definitely not the most expensive, but I'm not using the highest quality motor oil that they use in race cars. Right. That would not make sense. And even if I did race cars, I still wouldn't use my race car oil in my Toyota four runner. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, and you, you know, I think the way that that stuff trickles down is a different way, not of doing it the same way, but as, the technology advances, it trickles down in certain ways. Another way I can say it is there was a car racing team in 93 that basically developed active ride suspension to control the height of the car and, and uh, traction control or 92, they first started it back in the early nineties. That technology 20 years later is in our road cars. It wasn't in our road cars five years later, Hmm. but eventually it got to our road cars. So it's that over time trickle down of that information. Another possible way it it works is, so I'm very big on the regenerative medicine for the horses. Yeah. So what I mean by that is I don't give adequate or legend to any single one of my horses. Our vet work is based 95% around regeneratives. So that's PRP. IRAP, stem cell, and therapies. We don't, the other 5% is your anti-inflammatory steroids that most people use exclusively. I've invested a lot in getting, and honestly, I actually, it wasn't, wasn't like life-changing. It wasn't crazy, but getting the machines so that I, we could make it ourselves. Yeah. You know, obviously overseen by our vet. You know, our vet is the one who actually does it, not me, but we have the machines so that all I have to do is buy the kits. So it ends up being cheaper for me. Yeah, but that also lowering the cost then makes it more worth it for me to try and use it in other ways. Sure. You know, some vets will charge like two thousand dollars for a certain PRP treatment, and I can do it for one of my horses for like three hundred dollars.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's an enormous price savings. So now you won't wait till there's a huge problem to try two thousand dollar treatment. Right. You'll you'll try it. Much earlier, we're on other stuff. And so we've been able to knock out almost all of our anti-inflammatory drugs. You know, we don't give Butte or anything like, you know. And, and that, not everyone is able to buy the regenerative machines and the kits and to be able to pull that off. But me doing it and showing that it is possible to reduce all of these standard drugs that everyone uses mm-hmm. to basically zero that eventually will make it the way down. Yeah. Because I, you know, cause I can show that it's possible, you know, before we did it, there's no one that I knew that had done it.
0: Do you have any horses that are in your program that before you started doing that, like they were on, uh, you know, they were, on um, Butte or at legend and then went off of it. Like, do you have any of that type of data? Like any type of changes that that has made for any of the horses in your program?
1: Yeah. So if you're looking, you know, what trips a lot of people up is they'll say, show me the study. Yeah. A lot of what basic, a lot of what we do is impossible to build it into a study scenario. Right. Impossible. Right. I said it in one of my footing videos. It's anecdotal and experiential. Mm-hmm. And I know that doesn't help a lot of people, but a study means you have multiple horses, double blind, same problem, <laughs> same, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to study anything at, at, at a 160 horse, you need a large pool of 160 horses right? that people will let you play with. You know, yeah. That's never going to happen. Right. Ever. Ever. Anyone who has a horse capable of jumping 160 is not going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let you jump 40 fences on this horse, Mm -hmm. just, just for your study. No, (laughs) that's not going to happen. So it's really experiential and it has to take into account every other thing that we do, you know, all the way back to how we feed, you know, how we shoe, you know, you know, it takes a huge amount of effort, but over time, as you learn that it's possible, you can then make it easier you know the first step is possible, and then you can figure out how to make it easier for other people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I we're feel doing like some that,
1: cool stuff with the regenerative medicine.
0: That's so exciting to hear. I love that. I mean, I think that that's definitely an exciting place to take our sport. With especially, I mean, yeah, the, I, I know people always are trying to find ways to keep their horses healthy, and you know that longevity that we were talking about, and if that could be in a way that wouldn't involve all of those drugs that so many of our horses are on, that it could be something healthier. I I really think in the long run, I'm sure there's going to be ways, even though it's like literally impossible, like you were saying, there are so many variables, but the experience and just seeing your horse's healthier and sounder and, you know, lasting longer and and being able to get more jumps in. I mean, that's, that's going to be proof in and of itself. So it's exciting to see um, how that goes.
1: I mean, so, you know, people will do like their routine joint injections. Sure. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. So here's, here's how far we have gone. So every time one of my horses gets an injection of anything, my vet writes it down on a chart for that horse. And we chart that over the whole year, what was injected, where, and then at the end of the year, we get to review all of that and we tabulate what we've done. So last year we had an average of 10 horses and in the whole year we injected nine leg joints total.
0: No way. That's amazing. Total.
1: Not pairs. Total. Wow. And only two of them with a steroid.
0: Wow. That's huge. And
1: so, like, think of how far it ha- we have to push things to get to that point. And that, in- that takes so, you know, it, it takes a lot right. to get there. It has taken us years sure. of work. yeah. To get there to retrain ourselves to build the infrastructure to build the knowledge you know we still we we treat things along the the neck and the top line but leg injections we borderline never do Hmm. you know we're dealing with soundness without dealing with leg joints you know think of how much people would have to retrain their thought processes with their horse to take soundness out of leg joints yeah you know, you're not thinking, oh, it's the hawk or, oh, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it is. But, you know, think of how little it is if you're doing nine leg joints total amongst 10 horses in a year.
0: That's unreal. Like, that's that's so cool. That's, I mean, it's especially with, I mean, thinking about how, you know, how often those horses are showing and the height of the jumps and, the, you know, the classes and that mm-hmm. amount is that's insane. Like that's so cool.
1: Actually, that was twenty that was twenty nineteen. Sorry, twenty eighteen we had or twenty twenty we had the pandemic. So that year doesn't really count. Yeah. You know, if you're injecting a lot in twenty twenty, that you have other problems. That <laughs> yeah. was twenty nineteen. Wow. So what well, we were full showing, full on, you know, yeah, you know, regular year. Wow.
0: I mean, and there are yeah. there are definitely like studies on, you know starting horses really early on with leg like, injections versus not. And I mean, you'll hear vets all the time, you know, trying to not get that going with a young horse because it's kind of one of those things. Like once you start, it's going to have to go on a schedule or that's going to have to, you know, keep going with the maintenance injections. So.
1: Well, it's a law of diminishing returns. Right. It, you know, those the steroid injections they absolutely work if the problem is in the area that you inject. 100% <laughs> yeah. they are anti-inflammatory. Right. They are. I mean, they, they are anti-inflamm- steroidal anti-inflammatories. They 100% work. Mm-hmm. However, it's a diminishing return. And oftentimes they're not injected in the area that's causing the issue in the first place. They're injected into the secondary effect. Mm. You know, that hock is hurting not because there's an issue in the hock, but because there's an imbalance in the top line. Right. So I can keep injecting the hawk, yet that imbalance in the top line is still going to be there.
0: Yeah. So that's what we deal with. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. Well, Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I feel like we could have a million more episodes and talk about stuff, but I appreciate you taking the time and I wish you all the best. Of course.